Hello, and welcome to At the Forefront FinTech Conversations. I'm Michael Kingsley, a Senior Vice President at Forefront Communications, and we're a specialized marketing and PR firm focused on the capital markets and institutional FinTech sectors. Co-hosting with me today is Rafi Rieger, a Senior Consultant at Forefront. Hi, Rafi. Hi, Michael. I'm looking forward to a robust discussion. Robust indeed. And our guest today is Luke Fortin, who's President and CEO of the Montreal Exchange and Global Head of Trading for TMX Group. TMX Group is, of course, the owner and operator of equity markets in Canada, including the Toronto Stock Exchange. Hi, Luke. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I had down here that you were, you might say bonjour, Michel, but I guess we're going to keep bonjour, it. Bonjour, absolument, okay. absolument. <laughs> and we've exhausted the extent of my French. So <laughs> uh, Luke oversees all of the markets at TMX Group, including the Derivatives Exchange, OTC Trading, the TSX Venture Exchange, the Dark Pool, and others. And we'll talk about some of those today. But let's jump right into it and talk about why U.S. investors and investors around the world should be paying attention to what goes on in Canada. And the way we sort of looked at this is we were talking before the podcast, and we feel like Canada is sort of more on the cutting edge of things than the U.S. in terms of having the first listed ETF, for example. And the question we came up with is, is this something in the uh, Canadian national character, or is it just the size of the markets or existing legislation and regulation that helps Canada sort of be at the forefront of these things? Very interesting question, Michael. And I think there's a multifaceted approach to this response. When you basically set beside the largest and probably most liquid capital market globally, Sometimes it's difficult to differentiate yourself. Canada, I think, as part of global MSCI indices, represents you know anywhere around two and a half to three percent. So it's easily replicable by overweights in in other jurisdictions. So Canada really has to be at the forefront of innovation, and from a regulatory perspective as well, we need to embrace innovation and and allow these new products to come to market and to test new things to help differentiate ourselves with this large, very liquid market that sits south of the border to us. Now, a lot of this innovation has happened over the years. And, and you point out, I think from a regulatory perspective, regulators have been very quick to approve ETFs. I think back in the early 1990s, Canada was the first jurisdiction to have ETFs. We've obviously been the first of the G7 countries to, to fully legalize cannabis as an industry and have had tremendous success, tremendous growth in helping fund some of these newer entities that, that are kind of growing. And even most recently, we've seen ETFs linked to crypto, which is, again, a, a novelty globally in terms of providing access to retail participants and giving this market a little bit more credibility. I wanted to follow up on the cannabis industry because it has developed differently in Canada than it has in the U.S., and there are a number of reasons. The U.S. does not have a venture exchange, so smaller companies don't have access to public funding, and also investors don't necessarily have the opportunity to invest in them. Can you tell us a little bit more, because it seems like that has been a success area for Canada about the differences? It's the unique ecosystem that we have. I mean, TSX Venture is, is a gem in our portfolio, to be honest. And for a lot of nascent industries, it's a way to, you know, sort of tap capital. And another really interesting tidbit of info around our ability to attract international listings, on any given year, we punch well above our weight in terms of international listings. We usually would rank in the top three or four, and that's largely because of the contribution that TSX Venture does. So it, it has played a significant role in helping young, thriving, innovative cannabis companies seek the funds that they needed to basically launch their businesses. 
I noticed a term you used, you said nascent, and you've said that instead of fledgling in previous chats we've had. (laughs) So I know those are not official terminology for listings or anything there, but how do you talk about the state of the cannabis industry and funding when you say nascent versus fledgling? What do you mean? When you look at a lot of industries, when they start off, even tech, for example, when you look back historically, some folks say, you know, there were flops, there were crashes linked to tech and, and people said, oh, this is, these are fledgling industries. As industries grow, they have growth spouts and then they pause in reflection. And essentially that's what has unfolded. Everyone imagined that there would be global adoption to cannabis and it's taking a little bit longer, but we're not building businesses and industries, helping build industries for the next 10 minutes. We're helping build industries for the next decade, the next 25 years. It's absolutely paramount that we create an an ecosystem that allows these entities to flourish. So, you know, fledgling might be the case in some initial startups, but some of these fledgling companies might actually be thriving in a few years. It's just a matter of timing and giving them access to the right kinds of capital. Great. The flip side of the coin, no pun intended, is cryptocurrency. We mentioned it just briefly a moment ago. Can you talk to us about where that stands? And the way we were thinking about it is, is it sort of an argument for direct access to the Canadian markets, right? I mean, not a significant amount of the US has direct access there. And so speak to us a little bit about where cryptocurrencies stand on your exchanges and markets right now. When crypto emerged and made its way west, essentially started in Asia, and as it migrated to Western capital markets, it came with a huge roar. It almost seemed at some point that it was a solution looking for a problem. And the degree of adoption by retail clients led a lot of the regulators in Canada to kind of say, listen, you know, we got to get ourselves closer to this thing because just denying that it exists and the need to ensure that as retail, because retail participation in options markets and equity markets, particularly in 2020, 21, has literally exploded globally. Crypto was obviously another asset class that a lot of these retail investors were participating. I'm not in the minds of Canadian regulators, but I could absolutely say that I think sincerely that having regulation to ensure that the process to onboard clients, the KYC, all the due diligence that is thoroughly looked at when you're about to make investments in equity or or other types of securities should also apply to these different assets. They were very keen to sort of give a thumbs up on this and ensure that it had the right purview. Luke, you mentioned the regulators, and I wanted to expand on that a little bit and bring it out to talk about market structure more generally. As you are well aware, one of the debates that has been going on here in the U.S. in 2021 is overpayment for order flow. And as our listeners probably know, when brokerage firms like a discount broker like Robinhood gets an order, it has a choice as to where it routes that order. And very often market makers are willing to pay money, pay for that order flow so that they are the ones who get to execute it. And the controversy has been around whether those incentives are perhaps misaligned. So I want to ask from the Canadian point of view, how do you see things? Well, the long and short of it, there's not much debate because it's been banned in Canada for several years now. And it was made absolutely clear that payment for order flow transgressed some basic principles of fair access and best execution. And as such, you know, you don't want to create incremental fragmentation to your market. So We looked at this debate from up north. The interesting thing is that as all of these meme stocks were trading up a storm and and a lot of the 
clients of these retail shops like Robinhood were finding out that all of their orders were actually being bought out by market makers. There wasn't a clear line of sight that, in fact, the reason they're getting all of this free trading is because someone's got to pay. It's a zero-sum game. Like I said, it's not a debate in Canada. This is something that we view as not necessarily constructive to the confines of a lit market. When you stop and look at sort of U.S. market structure, I think there's not a ton of focus on this aspect, simply because if you have close to 50% of your activity happens in dark venues in the U.S. and in not lit marketplaces, given the sheer magnitude of the U.S. market, no one's flinching on that. But honestly, that doesn't point to a healthy lit market. When you have everything trading in a lit venue, it's obviously very encouraging for retail to be able to tap into this kind of liquidity and, and know what they can expect. That's one of the significant differences, I would say, between you know, the U.S. market and Canada. That's why regulatory authorities south of the border are now focusing on it because it appears to be a problem to a lot of these retail participants. Can we speak a little bit more about liquidity fragmentation issues more broadly, uh, talking a little bit about the proliferation of venues? We went through a sort of an alphabet soup of where you guys are uh, in a lot of different places at the beginning. So I guess it's a little chance to talk your book here, but can you tell us a little bit about the different exchanges and the roles for each there? Absolutely. We have the TSX, which is, you know, sort of our big board. Some bellwether indices that you would recognize would be the S&P TSX 60, which are the 60 largest companies that, that are listed on the TSX and, you know, our composite index of the top 300. I talked about our TSX Venture, which is our SME marketplace, which is kind of unique globally. And what we found is that specific venue has drawn significant interest. Probably 65% of the activity that happens on that venue is linked to retail participation. So as the effervescence of retail activity globally in the markets, it just allowed that market to absolutely thrive. Just an interesting fact, at one point earlier this year, number of shares traded on the venture exchange actually exceeded shares traded on the TSX, which is, we don't see this often. We might've seen it like a handful of times over the years, but that points to sort of a very robust retail activity on venture. We have our derivative marketplace, which is again, a very unique venue that allows trading of interest rate futures as well as equity derivatives. And, you know, we're globalizing this market in terms of taking what was deemed to be a more regional operator and we're really taking Canada to the world and very excited about this. We can probably talk a bit more about this later on. And we also happen to operate Shorecan, which is a fixed income IDB platform that services our sell side clientele in Canada. A lot of what you're focused on and, and what we work on with you, uh, with you guys is more exposure to the U.S. markets. And I know you've spoken a little bit about the education job and what do U.S. broker dealers need to know about what Canada brings to the table. Another way of looking at that is what are U.S. investors missing out on and how do we get them more access? Do you have thoughts on that? There are a number of things to unpack in terms of the ability for U.S. retail in particular. I think the institutional crowd can tap into Canada, no issues. But as we've seen the explosion of retail, Canada's often been viewed as commodity rich, resource rich, oil and gas. And as global clients have been you know, putting an ESG lens in terms of their investing, they've not taken a close look at Canada recently. And you know, if I just look at some of the capital raising activity we've seen so far in 2021, unbeknownst to a lot of folks, we've seen more tech listings. And tech listings have actually surpassed our mining, which is a massive, massive shift in terms of the stock list that we've had on our different exchange groups. This transformation of a, innovative products, access to new industries such as cannabis, 
access to you know innovative ETFs such as crypto. The story goes on about all kinds of other international listings that are coming to our venues, plus a lot of the great success stories that that are made in Canada as well should be a, a reason for you know U.S. retail in particular to want to focus on Canada. What I will add is that those that are attempting to access Canada via ADRs, I think last year the number was something like an extra $400 million in terms of lack of best X was left on the table by U.S. retail participants trying to tap into Canada. So clearly this fluidity for retail to you know have direct access to Canadian markets is something we need to tackle, absolutely need to tackle. I just wanted to focus on one of the things in your list there. You specifically said tech, and tech's kind of a broad category. So I think our listeners would be curious what areas of tech are, are you seeing a lot of listings in right now? It's been straight tech. It's been health tech, clean tech as well. Tech sector overall is actually, as I mentioned previously in our discussion, taken over the mining sector. So that in itself is a clear line of sight that the Canadian economy is transforming itself. And we're very excited. I think what we need to do a better job of, and this is certainly will be our responsibility, is to be advocating and helping tell the Canadian story globally. I've had an opportunity to travel to Asia 18 months ago before we all got locked down into our basements. Some of the reactions with investors, it's, oh, you know, they either think about Vancouver real estate, they either talk about mining, oil and gas. They are absolutely gobsmacked when you basically say, listen, we have the number one international listings. We're in the top three or four international listings venue on an annual basis. It's clear that we are, are helping transform the Canadian economy, both by interesting companies at home, but also attracting companies from all around the world to tap into this liquidity. So Luke, one exchange I didn't ask you about, I think we mentioned it in the list, but I didn't give you a chance to, to talk a little bit more about it, was TSX Alpha, which is the inverted venue, the inverted exchange. And I fully confess that I'm, I'm not an expert on what an inverted exchange is. I defer to Rafi on that, but I'll let you set it up and just tell us a little bit about TSX Alpha. Thanks for calling it out. I, I would be remiss to not talk about that important asset that's part of the trading ecosystem. What Alpha is in terms of an inverted venue, basically it helps cater to more real money and retail clients. These inverted markets, what they allow liquidity seekers to do is when liquidity is resting and a liquidity seeker is the one that's actually paying for the interaction. So that way, if you're combining a lot of your access to our alpha platform and our TSX platform, you're getting kind of the best of both worlds. You can expose whatever you want your position to the marketplace. And depending on what you get executed on, then you could wrap up your flow on the lit venue. What we find is that this allows you know, for more efficient best X, and it's one of the tools in our arsenal. You know, As we're talking about the international marketplace and letting the, the global investor community know what you're up to, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit and preview just a bit. We're going to have you on again in a few weeks to talk about something exciting that's happening, and that's extended trading hours in Asia, which are set to launch on September 19th. Without giving away our whole next podcast, <laughs> uh, can, can you give us a little bit of a preview of what that represents for you and what the timing means and that sort of thing? Yeah, this has been sort of an emerging vision, an emerging way to kind of drive our, our business and to drive Canadian capital markets globally. It's very difficult when you're trying to convince clients to you know, deal with you on your terms and conditions. You know, derivative markets 
we're the only G7 derivative marketplace that doesn't have 20 plus hours of trading. So we had a phase one launching into our European extended hours a couple of years back. And off the success of this, we embarked on, you know, sort of wrapping the clock and basically opening our markets along with Asian hours. So on September 19th, we'll be flipping the switch and we'll be following along with our peers with 20 and a half hours of trading a day and allowing Canada to get showcased 20 plus hours a day, I think is going to go a long way in helping us do our part in telling the Canadian story. We've spent a lot of time talking today about getting US investors more direct access to Canadian markets. Right now, we sort of see this hybrid model with ADRs and CDRs coming online. So I want to ask you the proverbial uh, five years from now, 10 years from now question. Do you think if we leap ahead five years, 10 years from now, we're looking at still sort of a cobbled together ADR, CDR world? Or do you think there's more direct access at that point? What's the direction we're going? I'm hopeful through greater collaboration, greater retail education that will end up probably in a happier place. I think ADRs and CDRs are probably a function of arbitrage or market inefficiencies as such. And I'd like to believe that in five years time, we're well beyond that and giving retail participation direct access to what it is that they want. So you're saying that ADRs, which were invented back in the 1920s by JP Morgan, which were essentially sort of like, hey, it's too risky or whatever for you to own a foreign stock. So we'll just own it for you and we'll issue a certificate and you can trade that. That time has passed. Investors don't need that protection anymore, at least when it comes to Canadian companies. Let me challenge you on that thought, Rafi. Is it in fact, let me protect you, but the the actual buyer has embedded credit risk now in terms of the counterparty who is issuing the ADR. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting debate. What is actually stronger, the underlying stock that's actually in the ADR or, or the counterparty risk that you take on in, in executing the ADR with? Right. Well, back in 1927, it was certainly oh, JP, yeah. <laughs> JP Morgan was certainly uh, stronger than whatever foreign companies there were. A blue chip value for sure, for sure. But I think I think the world has evolved, and you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of direct access as opposed to creating these complex structures. I mean, they're simple enough. ADRs, CDRs, you can call them single stock ETFs if you want. I mean, they're all you know, they all look alike and smell alike, and there are ways to basically eliminate some of the foreign exchange friction and some of the fractional ownership. It does away with a lot of some of the complexities of the marketplace, but retail clients, what we've seen over the course of the last, say, 18 months is a an increasing degree of ability for retail to understand complexity and to want to access things on their own. Luke, you mentioned the increased trading volumes during the last year and the explosion of retail. How have you dealt with that just technologically in terms of being up and available all the time for investors who have come to expect that? It's a really good question and very apropos because we have been sinking millions of dollars in beefing up the the resiliency of our equity platforms and, and in essence, all of our trading platforms. You very rightfully point out the fact that you know there is this expectation that markets are always going to be available. And whenever there's outages as short as they can be, it's a massive inconvenience to get everyone resynchronized. So as we saw the surge in activity in 2020 and 2021, probably more in early 2020, what it made us reflect on is the fact that we need to be making some significant investment to make sure that the resiliency of our platforms are capable of handling well beyond what we were seeing on sort of peak days. So 
our objective is to be prepared for the next storm and you you never know what that's going to look like so you've got to be prepared and capable of handling all of that massive flow that's coming in and you rightfully point out retail has also played a very significant role in in that growth of activity luke any closing thoughts on what we've talked about today Gentlemen, thank you very much for showing interest in TMX Group and the markets business in particular. Obviously, we take great pride in in the ecosystem that we've built and our strong client relationships globally that we continue to build, especially, you know, showing an interest to a large global audience and, and a large American audience, what's going on in Canada and seeing some interest come from the US towards the Great White North. A. Hey. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Luke. Uh, and we're going to pick back up with Luke in a few weeks to talk a little bit more about the extended trading hours in Asia launch. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about TMX, you can visit their website at tmx.com or use the command TMX Go on the Bloomberg terminal. And if you'd like to learn more about Forefront, you can visit us at forefrontcoms, that's C-O-M-M-S dot com. So we'll be back with Luke in a few weeks. Thank you very much to all of you for listening. This has been At the Forefront, FinTech Conversations. Mm-hmm.